Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Your genes are the mechanism that you use to reproduce yourself, right? Human beings use genes to reproduce themselves. But he says, if you want to understand evolution, you should think of it the other way that human beings are the mechanism that genes use to reproduce themselves, right? It's the gene that's sort of active there, and then the gene creates this person so that the person can go out and recreate more genes. Hey, I am so glad that you're here. Thank you for discovering more with us today. My name is Benoit Kim, an abstract thinker turned psychotherapist. Today's conversation with a prominent psychologist will teach you about the evolutionary purpose of love and whether humans can fall in love with AI. This is such a timely conversation, and I'm really excited to share this with you. Dr. Aaron Ahuvia is a consumer psychologist, marketing professor at the University of Michigan, and a published author of The Things We Love. Aaron is the most widely published and cited academic expert on non interpersonal love. Aaron is one of the top 25 most influential researchers in consumer psychology. Expect to learn about the evolutionary purpose of love, the paradox of non interpersonal love and dating AI, the relationship between happiness and money, and much, much more. Before the episode, here is the sponsor of the week. How many times do you have to switch stations to find the music you like? Us too. Which is why we've created Cool.FM, the perfect blend of adult hits, modern country, and your favorite classics. Cool.FM is accessible on all mobile platforms and smart devices, so you can multitask and listen to the music you like best. Available online at Cool.FM, that's K E W L.FM, and on all mobile and smart devices. Internet radio at its best. Cool.FM. Now, please enjoy my riveting conversation with Dr. Aaron Ohuvia. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show. for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Aaron was recommended by my sister who is taking his marketing class at her grad school. So, shout out to Estelle. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Benoit, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Could you tell me what is the origin of love from your research and exposure in the last decades? One of the things I found most interesting in this work is learning how many animals love. I kind of went into it thinking that humans were the only animal that you know, had this. That's really not true. For a long time, there were some biologists who would say, Oh, your dog doesn't really love you. Your dog just has learned, has evolved to mimic love so that you'll feed it, but it's not actually you know, experiencing anything like that. But now they have fMRI machines and they can do brain scans and they do brain scans on various animals when they're with their animal mate. And they do brain scans on people when we're with our mates. And there's the same pattern of neural activity. In mammals, in some mammals. And so it really is pretty clear that animals do love. They call it something else, though. I think some of the confusion is that whenever it's an animal, we just tend to use the word bonding instead <laughs> of love, maybe because we just still want to maintain some sense that we're somehow better or superior. So we want to have the special word for us. In any event, though, there's a lot of animals that have this kind of bonding. So It's pretty obvious when you look at this across hundreds of thousands of or tens of thousands of different species, and you get this relationship that why love evolved originally. And love is a system of motivation that gets parents to take care of their children and gets parents to cooperate with each other. So that's really what 
the function that it had originally evolved for. Now, humans are, some biologists I've read say we're unique in this. Others say, no, there's just a small number of other animals that also do this. That we're one of the very, very few animals that has developed the ability to love outside of these reproductive families. So we have friends. The relationship between friends, we don't always use the term love, but psychologically, that's what it is. It's the same fundamental mechanism. In the same way that you know, romantic love has a sexual component and other kinds of love don't have that sexual component. Similarly, when there's a friend, the context changes the way we experience that love a little bit. But it is basically the same thing. And what this does for humans, it is, allows us to be really effective in working together with other people. Because you have trust in these other people and you cooperate really well with these other people. And you come to their aid and they come to your aid when needed. And so this can happen just between individual friends or you get the same kind of bonding in a group. So if you live in a tribe, you may have the sort of allegiance to your tribe as a whole that connects you. And any sports coach will tell you that one of the first things they do on a sports team is they want to try and get the people on the team to really love each other because that kind of love within the team makes the team more effective. And that's one of the things that humans have done is they've taken this love and extended it beyond just our offspring or our mates. And now we use it as a way of making our whole, you know, groups that we function in more effective. And love is interesting for humans because a lot of people don't know this, but if you look at neurobiology literature, the period of the highest cortisol spike, which is a stress hormone, generally speaking, you experience that during the honeymoon phase or right before when you first meet someone or you air quote fell in love your cortisol level actually spikes significantly because you experience this flight or freeze phenomenon where, oh, is this, can I trust this person? Is the love and this feeling being reciprocated? And there's actually a lot of stake or perceived internal threat and stake. So I feel like love is a very interesting thing. It doesn't matter what dimensions you look at overall. And you can increase the odds of someone falling in love by creating that kind of very high stress <laughs> environment for them. And I think that's one of the reasons people like horror movies, especially like on dates, is because the scariness of that experience creates a bonding experience between people. I, I remember interviewing one guy and asking him why he likes being scared in horror movies because I was never really a fan of them and he really loved them. And he said, oh, I don't like being scared. I like being scared with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And it really is creating this bonding between the people. Maybe that's why my fiance Becky wants to watch true crime Netflix shows with me because maybe our love is running out. So she's like, oh, I need to biohack and <laughs> rejuvenate and revive the love true crime shows. I somehow doubt that, but um, <laughs> I'm sure the love is not, you're, you're far too young for that. But uh, Yeah, there is a book this I'm reading called uh, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. He is one of the psychiatrists and psychotherapists who wrote dsm 4 He was one of the original panelists. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like evolutions per Darwinism, where a lot of things we do, whether it's love or whether it's evolutionary mechanism, it benefits the genes, not the species. Mm -hmm. So survival of the fittest is not really describing to us. It's just about the genes aspect. So in that sense, Aaron, do you feel like love, this complicated, multidimensional, ever expensive thing we've been talking about, do you think it primarily benefits the genes more or us as a species since humans are a little bit different than just the traditional mammals, even though we're the mammal with the biggest brain? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point. I mean, so some of the listeners might be familiar with a very famous book called The Selfish Gene. And that was the best selling sort of popular science book of all time. I think it probably still is the best selling. And it explains basic evolution. And one of the things reiterating what you were saying is that most people think of, you know, your genes are the mechanism that you use to reproduce yourself, right? Human beings use genes to reproduce themselves. But he says, if you want to understand evolution, you should think of it the other way. 
that human beings are the mechanism that genes use to reproduce themselves, right? It's the gene that's sort of active there, and then the gene creates this person so that the person can go out and recreate more genes. And you end up with sort of these two different perspectives on it. You've got the genes. Of course, the gene doesn't really have a perspective. It doesn't have thoughts. But if you'll forgive the metaphor, right, the genes perspective, which is like, how do I get more genes just like me? And the person's perspective, which doesn't necessarily care about that. I'm a big fan of the idea that as human beings, we don't have to we don't have to listen to our genes. <laughs> we, you know, our genes, our genes really want us to have as many kids as we could possibly raise to adulthood. That's their goal, right? And so, you know, we'd all be having 15 kids if, if we were all listening to our genes. But I don't think that makes my life the best. I have, you know, two wonderful sons. I'm really happy with them. I'm calling it quits there. <laughs> so I think that we get to make our own decisions. And similarly with the things that we love, your genes, the whole thing is kind of an accident as far as your genes are concerned. Your genes care about you know, you having kids and they care about you being successful in your relationships with other people. But, you know, one of the central points of my book is that I really don't think from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense for people to love objects. If you go back to why love evolved, it evolved so that parents would take care of their children and that parents would cooperate with each other while they take care of their children. And you know, loving objects just isn't going to get you there. You're, it doesn't make sense to lavish that on, on objects. And it can even go wrong. I mean, if you look at hoarding, hoarding is a lot, it's sort of the same phenomenon of loving things. You'll notice this, like if you love it, you've got a gift or something that was given to you that's really important, or maybe some object that you aren't using and you have a lot of clutter and you want to declutter and you want to get rid of this thing but you have the sentimental attachment to it and you just can't get yourself to get rid of it, that is not evolutionarily valuable to you. Evolution would say, no, just get rid of the damn thing. Right? But it is something which is nice. It makes our life richer. And you know, for hoarders, they have this thing that just, it's totally out of control. They have that same kind of impulse, but they feel it towards very, very strongly towards lots and lots of things. And they just can't get rid of them. And so clearly it can go awry if it's, you know, too big of a deal in your life. It can be very much a problem. But just have a little bit of it to feel sentimental, to see that old T-shirt that you used to wear and to have this little twinge of sentiment about, oh, I love that T-shirt. That's, you know, I just think that's sort of a nice thing in your life, even if you're, it doesn't make a lot of sense to your genes. I was thinking about the Dr. Love T-shirt. I was expecting you to wear that for this interview. And as you said, <laughs> the healthy amount of attachment is healthy. So that's a perfect segue. And we'll go talk about your book, The Things We Love. I'm going to quote one of the excerpts from your book, and I'm going to ask you a question. The things we love can make us happy, but they can also cause us suffering. We can become overly attached to them and perceive them as essential to our well-being. We can become dependent on them and feel anxiety when they're not available. So Aaron, as the author of this book and the experts about non-interpersonal love, how can we best manage our attachments to the things we love? Since you talk about attachments can lead to both suffering or joy. I am sometimes asked by people, you know, should you just not get attached, right? Because that way you won't have the suffering if it goes away. And my feeling about that is, well, you could make that argument about people, right? Don't make any friends, then you won't be sad if you lose your friends. But no, you want to make friends. It's, it's really worth it. And the world isn't that unstable. You know, it's true. Maybe you, you know, love your bicycle and maybe you're then really sad if it's stolen. But your bike isn't that likely to get stolen. So I, I think that there's a good point there to, you know, forming these attachments if, it, if, if they're productive for you. They do become a problem when you know when there are problems so i have a friend and colleague his name is matthew ricard and he's very well known he is both a scientist but also a tibetan buddhist monk wow and he is the very involved in the research on meditation and often acts as the dalai lama's official spokesperson on meditation issues so he's a very credible guy and i asked him about this because I was like, well, you know, you're you Buddhists, you're all about non-attachment. And here I am studying attachment. What do you think about this? And I said, you know, a lot of these things, people seem to get 
get a lot of pleasure out of them. They seem to really like their CD collection, right? And, um, you know, is it bad to have a CD collection that you love that music and you love your CD collection? And his response was, nothing's a problem until it's a problem. So if you've got some attachments, you've got your, your record collection or your book collection, and it's really, you feel like it's serving you. Like you've got this, these warm feelings. It's not causing chaos in your life. You're not a hoarder. You're not cluttering up your house with garbage, right? Well, then that's good. And you just have to be very honest and aware of when attachments can cause you know, problems. I will say like one frequent problem people talk about is, is the decluttering of things and you know not being able to get rid of things you should get rid of. And there's a couple of things that come from Marie Kanto who really had some good ideas about this that I like. One is the taking the picture of the object and keeping the picture. So you feel like you maintain some attachment to it, but it doesn't cause a lot of space around your house. The other is she has this whole ritual about saying goodbye to things. And at first I thought that was kind of weird when I first heard about it. <laughs> but through my research, I've learned that the reason you feel it's difficult to let go of these objects is that your brain decides if something is a person at least two separate times. So once consciously it makes a decision over whether something is a person, and then unconsciously it makes another decision about whether it's a person. And most of the time these are in alignment. So, you know, almost all the time, if your conscious mind has decided it's a person, your unconscious mind has also decided it's a person. But sometimes they're not. And we'll talk in this, you know, I'm sure we'll get to like the reasons why that happens. But when you have this sentimental attachment to objects and you have a hard time getting rid of them, what's happened is that your conscious mind has decided it's an object, but your unconscious mind has decided it's a person, or at least sort of partly like a person. And so your unconscious mind has formed this attachment, which is really designed or evolved for humans, has formed the same kind of attachment with it. And therefore, if you want to break that attachment, treating it a little bit more like a person is in sync with, it's in harmony with the way your unconscious mind is already thinking about it, you know, that it's a person. So saying goodbye to it and having a little goodbye ritual can, can sometimes be very helpful. That's actually the similar core tenets with grief counseling, where two most commonly used clinical techniques for grief counseling, for grief and the loss, is idea called the transitory or transient object, where you ask the clients or patients to identify a photo, an item that captures the shared memory about you and the deceased person. And that's actually very effective, which is the same and in terms of the ritual, it's also like the idea that let's honor the memories. Since a lot of us, we love positive emotions, even the dichotomy, even though, as you know, to our brains, they're just emotions. Because our brains are so optimal, we don't do things that's meaningless. So even anger, fear, primary, secondary, negative emotions, air quote, that we characterize as, to our brains, they all serve a purpose. So I ask a lot of my clients to, especially men clients, in the beginning, you talked about a lot of us don't call friendship love, especially with men, right? We're very shy with that terminology. You have to honor the grief and the sadness and the anger and the resentment. Whatever that container is, you have to honor it and sit with it. And by acknowledging it, that's actually how you dissipate the emotions that we often try to run away from. So I never thought to make that connection, but Marie Kondo, obviously, she's an expert. The decluttering has been a big Netflix trend lately because of the rising hoarding. And of course, hoarding is an actual mental disorder by DSM-5, like a full-blown scale, of course, but some interesting connections there. One of the things you mentioned there with, you know, how do you deal with grief about a person? Well, you find some, maybe a photograph of you two together. That fits very well into the whole issue of what kinds of things people love, because in order to love something, your brain has to treat it a little bit like a person. You know, love evolved for certain very specific kinds of human relationships. And in order for an object to sort of fit that template so that your brain can love it, the object must be thought of as 
what I call an honorary person. So you don't have to really, you don't really think it's a person, but your brain is kind of treating it like a person. So it's sort of an honorary person for purposes of that relationship. And one of the main ways that happens is the object just gets associated with a real person. So you love this photograph of you and this other person, and you your brain treats that photograph as if the photograph itself were human. But that's because your brain has made a very strong connection between the photograph and the other actual human in the photograph for you. And that is giving the photograph this sort of human quality. It's, it's seen as like a part of this other person. And that's tremendously common. One of the things that we found in our research and that many other people who've done similar research have found, if you go into somebody's home and you interview them and you ask them, are there things here that you love or do you have special possessions or what are the objects that you would be most upset if you lost these things? You ask them that sort of question. Overwhelmingly, they mention objects that in their mind are strongly connected to another person. So it might be a, a photograph. It might be like a gift they received from the other person. It might be a souvenir. I took this trip with this other person and we bought this you know, souvenir from that trip and it reminds me of them. But there's some sort of a connection to other people. And that's why in the book, the subtitle of the book, the title is The Things We Love. And then it says, how our passions connect us and make us who we are. That's the how our passions connect us. That the things we love are very often symbols of our relationships with other people. Or sometimes they go beyond being symbols. They're actual tools that we use to promote those relationships with other people. So, you know, I love throwing dinner parties. I love, I got some like serving stuff that I really love and some cooking stuff that I love. But the reason I love it is that it lets me connect with my friends when we have this event together. So from your research with your book or just your academic research, have you came across any intersection between attachment theory, our relationship with our primary caregivers, how that manifests over time, and also with the way you view attachment with non-interpersonal things? Because my brain's going somewhere weird where I wonder in 10, 20, 30 years, is there going to be attachment theory extrapolated into the things and this mediated containers with AIs, robots, things like that. But anything comes up for you there? Yeah, well, there already is a fair amount of research on this. And what they find is that, you know, our early relationships, as you were explaining a moment ago, our early relationships with our parents, primarily our mother, we, as children, that becomes a template for our later relationships in life. And so if that relationship was strong and secure and went well, then we think, oh, these relationships are good and they can work that way. But if you felt um, insecure and unloved, then you're worried later about being unloved in your future relationships. And that also extends somewhat to our relationships with objects. And that's partly if we, you know, anthropomorphize the objects and we see the object itself as a person, then that, that template influences our feelings. But it's also, again, that so many of our relationships with objects are really relationships with people indirectly. <laughs> and so our feeling about the object is really about, you know, some sort of a person. There was some work that was done that I find kind of interesting. People who have insecure attachments to their parents, often if they're in a relationship with a company and they feel they've been harmed by the company, they can get very vengeful. But people who are sort of emotionally secure, if a company does something bad, they'll get angry for a little while, but then they'll just kind of let it go and move on to the next thing and you know not let it run their life. But people who feel very insecure in their human relationships, if they're treated poorly by a company, they'll feel they've been betrayed and they'll seek revenge. And they'll go you know, online and pretend to have bought products from this company just so that they can leave nasty reviews about how terrible the company is. And it represents their emotional insecurity just sort of in general. One of my dual degrees in college many years ago was behavior economics. And I came across this graph stating the happiness index decreases after about $76,000. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know that graph, right? Can you fact check that and tell me 
what are the correlations with our happiness level? Because what you just talked about, emotionality and emotional reactivity with culture, with company based on our primary relationships, in a way comes down to what we perceive as contributing to our quality of life and quality of living. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that graph and just anything uh, that comes up for you there? That's a very famous graph. This question of the relationship between income and happiness is one of the most commonly studied questions in sort of economic psychology and, and related areas. And it's interesting because you'll hear people say, some people say, well, we've definitively shown that there is no relationship. And other people say, well, the science has definitively shown that there is a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so it can get a little confusing depending on who you're listening to. The first thing you need to do is figure out what you mean by happiness, because it actually makes an enormous difference how you define happiness. So there is one type of study that's called an experience sampling study. And these are really cool. And the way they work is, you know, people have got their smartphones or there's on them, and you'll get like a text at various parts of the day, randomly, you've agreed to be in the study. And every time you get a text, you fill out a very short questionnaire that says, okay, at this exact moment, what were you doing when you got the text and how did you feel? So it's like, were you driving to work? Were you eating lunch? Whatever it was. And like, how were you actually feeling at that moment? And so it gives a really accurate measure of how people feel through the day and also like how what you are doing affects how you feel throughout the day. One of the findings from this, for example, is that when people are commuting, they're really unhappy. (laughs) People's scores, you know, when they're commuting are really, really bad. And if you happen to interrupt someone when they're making love, well, their scores there are really good. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, there's, you can find the high points and the low points of people's days um, this way. But if you look overall and say, okay, you know, how much of the day do people spend feeling good? And then you find out how much money they make and you just sort it out and say, do the people who make a lot of money, do they spend more of their day feeling good than the people who make less money? There's almost no relationship between how much money people make and how they feel. To an extent, that's really surprising to me because I would have expected that there would have been some relationship, but that it would have been fairly small but on the other hand, you know, if you're wealthier, you could you don't have to have a car with a broken muffler and that noise isn't bothering you. And, you know, your air conditioning works and the heat isn't bothering you. And something happens. There's so many people in America where if, you know, their car breaks down, they don't have $400 to fix their car and they're just put into a terrible crisis. Right? But if you've got money and your car breaks down, it's not a big deal. You go ahead, you have it fixed. So it seemed to me like, it, that should show up, but it really does not show up very much at all. There's almost no relationship unless you get to people who are, you know, homeless and living on the street or suffering from a severe mental illness or something along these lines. So that's one answer. There's one more uh, really great study on this that I think is very interesting. In this study, they looked at married couples where both members of the couple worked. And they looked at how happy each person was, and they had each person's individual income from their job, as well as the combined income as a family. And this was only in families where they pooled all of the money. It wasn't one of these, like, he keeps his and she keeps her separately. In this situation, it's really useful because your living standard is based on the joint income, the pooled income, you and your spouse together, how much money you make. That determines like how nice a house you live in and what kind of a car you drive and what restaurants you eat in. But they found that to the extent that people's happiness was related to money, it wasn't related to the combined income. It was only related to their individual income. Interesting. So if you have a couple where one person is you know, making $200,000 a year and the other person is making $20,000 a year, 
The person making $200,000 a year, if you ask them how good is your life, they'll report their life is much better than the person earning 20,000, even though both of them are living in the same house off $220,000 a year. And what this means is it's not the consumption. It's not that you get more stuff when you have more money because the person with a low income has just as much stuff as the person with a high income in that family. Rather, it's your sense of pride that people have this sense of accomplishment that my career is going well, and they're proud about that. And so it's really that sense of pride and accomplishment that people get from money to the extent that money makes them happy. That's really where it's coming from, more than the earning than the spending. Probably also an underlying theme of ownership and feeling like you have a sense of control in your life, which I'm sure is correlated with the amount of income, even in the joint family. But with your research that you just cited and your own research, I do want to caveat that by asking, were this based out of weird, Western industrialized, educated, rich? This research on income and happiness is one of the few research areas where there's huge amounts of data from global surveys. And it's not simply based on uh, Western affluent uh, folks. And you do see differences between cultures. So in some cultures, the correlation between income and happiness is stronger than it is in other cultures. And that has to do with you know, a, a lot of different factors. One of the obvious ones is egalitarianism. So if you look at the Scandinavian countries, where there aren't enormous differences between the rich and poor, and there's a lot of government services, the relationship between income and happiness is lower than it is in places where there's a lot of wealth disparity, which is sort of what you would expect. And there are some other differences. But the general finding that if you define happiness as how you actually feel going through your day, you're not going to find almost any effect at all of income on that happiness. But if you define happiness as how successful you feel your life has been, then you will feel, you will find some relationship between money and happiness and, and that sense of feeling successful. That is widely replicated around the world. That makes sense. So now I wanna lean that into the cultural differences and I wanna extrapolate that into like the massive culture of mediated culture, which is a technology, screen time, metaverse, web 3.0, a machine learning, and also the unmediated, which is a natural world that is ever shrinking. And I hate the or argument. They're like, oh, it's mediated or unmediated. It's, no, it's always and, like nature and nurture. It's not or. So from your perspective and tying this into your book and your research, Aaron, how do you think that love will shift with the rapid and inevitable rise of artificial intelligence and other mediated experiences, since that's a big part of your book, and we are on that cusp. I get about 10 emails a day by AI-driven short content generating agencies to try to work with me. So I feel like it's becoming more and more ubiquitous. And of course, legacy medias like the news are covering about ChatGBT and all things. So I think it's going to have a very profound effect. Technology is going to have a profound effect on our relationships with object is anthropomorphism. So here, your relationship is really with the object itself, and your brain has been fooled into thinking this object is a person. And this happens, as I, I said earlier, at an unconscious level. So consciously, of course, you look at this thing and you know it's not a person, but there's your unconscious mind has its separate mechanisms for making up its mind about that. And those mechanisms they evolved. There were never objects that talked and looked like people but weren't people. So they, you know, throughout human evolution, you can have a conversation with something. Your unconscious mind says, well, that's a person. That's pretty good. That's not going to get be wrong very often. But now all of a sudden that's going to start to be wrong. And so I think about, you know, examples where Aboriginal cultures or native cultures would get exposed to a new germ that they'd never encountered before. And all of a sudden, this you know, smallpox, or whatever it is, would just tear through and decimate this community. 
because they'd never built up any defenses against that. And we're kind of in a similar position that we've never had you know, robots walking around that look like people, or even if it's disembodied, just a voice come out of your phone that sounds like a person that isn't a person. And our unconscious mind has no defense about that. So your unconscious mind starts treating that like a person. Love is largely produced unconsciously. You, know, you, fall, you don't decide to fall in love with someone, you don't go through a checklist. That's the problem with a lot of the dating. You've got your checklist, and you go through the checklist and that tells you one thing, but then unconsciously you may or may not have fallen in love with the person and that tells you something else and they're often out of sync. So there's a, a lot of examples. There's a website called Replica, spelled with, replica with a K for Replica. And you can pay a little money there and there'll be this animated character on the screen that you can have conversations with. This is just like a chat, a conversation bot. and up until very recently, one option that you could pay for was a romantic setting so that it would, you know, share romantic love with you. And people who would use this would report that, well, consciously, I know it's not a person, but unconsciously, I had this incredible connection. And this is extremely powerful. And they would fall in love with, with these chatbots. And the company found this a little troubling and the company has aspirations of being very mainstream and didn't want to get stereotyped in this way. So they actually cut off that aspect of the service, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they stopped doing that, but I'm sure there'll be other places that will pick up that opportunity without a, a problem. And if you start talking with some even animated character on screen, if you relax and sort of let yourself go for it, it's very possible to fall in love. And there's a real worries around that. I mean, there's good news. The good news is there's a lot of people who currently aren't able to meet their social needs. And we're not doing a very good job as a society helping those people. And those people seem to report that when they do create these, you know, parasocial relationships, these sort of quasi relationships with these androids or these chatbots, that they really feel a lot better. And I wish that our society had a better mechanism for helping them form relationships with actual people and getting the support that they need that way. That would be much better. But I feel like since we're not doing that, and it doesn't look like we're about to start anytime soon, you know, if these people can feel better through these relationships, that's good. However, the danger is that people come to replace normal relationships with these kinds of relationships. And that these relationships are not gonna be as rewarding as a real relationship with a person, but they are gonna be a lot easier and a lot more convenient. And if you think about junk food, junk food isn't the best food, but it's very easy food. And we eat a lot of it because it's so convenient. It tastes reasonably good and it's cheap and it's always there. You know, these relationships with Chatbots are the junk food of relationships. They're not as good as relationships with people, but they're really easy and they're going to be there and they're going to be cheap. And given how much, how many hamburger junk we eat, how many hamburgers we eat, it makes me worried that we're going to do something similar with these relationships. I love burgers and pizza, full stop. But that's a powerful analogy where I've never considered this precipice the frontier we're in now with the rise of AI, machine learning technology, with native culture experiencing smallpox or these genes or these germs for the first time. So I want to go a little bit deeper because I think this is fascinating where do you have any two cents or opinions about what are some of the foreseeable and also unforeseeable, in other words, expected or unexpected consequences or intended and unintended consequences of us, the human society, especially in America, since we're like the pinnacle of the West culture, generally speaking, we're going to face as a society or as individually with this rise of germ or technological germ. So if we step back just for one second, and let's say that people do start forming relationships, you know, with the voice on their cell phone, and start having more intimate conversations, and it just, it's always with me, and I can always vent to my cell phone, and it's nice, etc. In one sense, 
that's just an individual issue. Like we all make our choices. We all can choose to do this or not do this. And at least in Western society, we tend to say, well, then let each individual make up their own mind and figure out what's best for them. But there's also a social ramification, which is that if these chatbots that we form these relationships with are very psychophantic towards us and very indulgent towards us, you know, in a real relationship, you have to listen to the other person. You have to you know, listen to them at times when you really don't want to. Maybe their problems aren't very interesting to you at that moment. You still have to listen to them and be supportive. But with these chatbots, they're not going to ask you to do anything you don't want to do. I mean, they might share some problem with them and they'll say, oh, I know how that feels. And then they'll share a problem with you. But it won't be very long. It'll only be to make you feel heard. And then they're going to stop and do something else. So they're never going to make any real demands on you because that's not their business. Their business is just making you feel good all the time. I heard a psychologist being interviewed once who was a clinical psychologist and worked in Hollywood and had a lot of big celebrities that he was seeing. And he said that they had acquired narcissism, that sometimes people think of narcissism as something that you, know, you can only have through bad childhood experiences or maybe some genetics or something along these lines. But these are people who became terribly narcissistic because they were surrounded by sycophants, people who would always be interested in whatever they had to say and always laugh at their joke and make them the center of attention at all times. And I wonder, like, are we going to have a culture where you have to go out in the world and everyone you meet is incredibly narcissistic because they've been indulged by these chatbots and made to feel like their opinions are the only ones that matter and their needs are the only needs that matter. That's fascinating. Do you feel like in a way that translates to increased superficiality? Since a lot of my clients struggle with superficial relationships and they often complain that, oh, I don't have that many meaningful social connections because there is a big difference between having connections and having meaningful connections. And it's not surprising because what's the most common way we say goodbyes or end relationships, romantic or friendships? Oh, they offended me. I was hurt. Didn't work out. Block, 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 block. So even if the other person want to reach out and reconcile and have a conversation with you, they don't have the avenue because you block them on all aspects. And one of the big things we do as psychotherapists, at least I do, is we always dedicate a sessions on closure. Termination sounds horrible. So we said this is a designated session to talk about our feelings, how we feel, you know, to close out in person as a parallel process because we're teaching them micro skills that hopefully translates in real life. So how do you view what you just said with this idea that this increasing superficiality that I think a lot of Americans are already grappling with, with the rise of social media? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it fits right in there. I mean, I could really see something like that becoming worse. Maybe, you know, I'll give you the bad news and then I'll give you maybe <laughs> okay. uh, a little bit more of a hopeful anecdote, which I thought was, was interesting. So on the bad news side, I can totally imagine that if, you know, we have these ongoing relationships with chatbots that are just pretending to or seem to be totally enamored with everything that we say and think we're the most important thing. You know, I think of them as like electronic dogs. I have dogs. You may have even just heard yeah. in the background a bark from one of my dogs. And part of the reason that we love our dogs is like we come home and they're just so happy to see us. And really, we do take care of our dogs, but the relationship is mostly about us. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's really, you know, they love us. They, you know, it doesn't matter what we do, how we treat them. They still love us. And they just look at us adoringly at all times. So if you have, you know, these chatbots are going to be the same thing, only in a human form that, you know, will, will be all about you all the time. I think people will find that very rewarding, but I could easily see how it could decrease the incentive and the ability to get really deep relationships with other people and keep things at a superficial level with other people. In part because you don't even learn how, perhaps, to have those other conversations if you don't have them. That would be the, the bad news. I will give you one counterexample that I thought was fascinating that made headlines uh, about a month or so ago. This was a guy who was talking about his replica girlfriend. So he had 
was using this on-screen animated figure girlfriend to talk to and had fallen madly in love with her. But he said that it saved his marriage. So he was in a marriage. His wife had postpartum depression. She'd been depressed for years, and they really could not solve that problem very well. And because he was suffering from this ongoing chronic, really severe depression, she was really incapable of providing him with love because she was just so caught up in her, her own depression. And they were actually talking about divorcing and, and things were not going well. And then he formed this relationship with this computer generated figure and said, because the figure was so indulgent of me and, and sort of fed me this unconditional love, I learned what it looks like to feed somebody else that unconditional love. And so also because he felt like he was having his needs met by this chatbot, he didn't, it was okay that his wife was unable due to her depression to provide him with these emotional support that he needed. So he, he made a vow to himself that he was going to treat his wife the way the chatbot treated him. And he was just going to use the chatbot as the model for how to behave in this relationship. And he said it totally turned around his relationship and saved his relationship with his wife. And he has the support and energy to do it because after he talks to his wife and gives her all the support, he can turn around and unburden himself with on the computer. I thought that's totally surprising. And I don't know if that is going to be common or even how true it is. It's one person's account of what he says is happening. You know, maybe that's reality, maybe it's not. But it does leave us with a nicer picture that maybe there's an upside to some of this. That is a plot twist. Definitely didn't see that coming. But I feel like this discussion bags the bigger questions about individualistic pursuit of happiness versus a collective well-being. Since I know you're known as a professor of peace, love, and you're very big on peace, and peace requires multiple parties. So I want to connect that with one of the another excerpt from your book and ask you about how you view this, not dichotomy per se, but just this dance between the individuality, since that's what America mostly is, and the collective's value, which is what the East and Asia and a lot of these other cultures are. And I think there's a fine balance because I think America is way too individualistic. And I think certain aspects of Asia are way too collective at the cost of individual happiness and well-being. Your excerpt says, Our attachment to the things we love can influence our decisions, our behavior, and our relationships. We may be willing to take risk or even make sacrifices for the things we love, and we may be willing to overlook or excuse our flaws. We may also be willing to give up other things in order to be able to keep the things we love. And of course, that things here can be substituted by other people's well-being, culture, collectivist value. But yeah, using your excerpts and tying to what I just said, any thoughts come up to you there? I will say something about individualism and collectivism, which is I had always thought that the West in America was an incredibly materialistic place until I spent time in Singapore and <laughs> discovered, <laughs> discovered an even more materialistic place. A lot of times in collectivist societies, your reputation in, they often use the word face for this. So your face or reputation is very important. And people get very concerned with status objects because they are ways of maintaining their reputation and presenting successful image to others, which is, very important in America, but even more important in these other places, they don't often end up really loving those goods because they don't have that much of a connection to them themselves at an emotional level. It's really like a performance that they're putting on for other people. And so they don't often develop that. But sometimes they do. And a lot of the times when people love things, as, as I've mentioned, it's really because the object connects them to other people. So there has been some interesting work done on brand loyalty and looking at what kind of consumers or what situation, I should say, consumers are more brand loyal in. One situation is just like me and some brand and, you know, whether I'm going to be, if there's a, another brand that's on sale, 
right? Am I going to just buy the one that's on sale or am I going to keep going with the one that I feel this emotional attachment to? If it's just me and the brand, the odds are pretty good that I'm actually just going to buy the one that's on sale. There isn't a lot of force to that. But if I'm in a situation where it's me and I've got a couple of friends, and one of the things that we all have in common is that we all love this brand. You know, we're all big fans of this brand. Then when the competing brand goes on sale, I'm much more likely to remain loyal to the brand. And the reason is because if I was disloyal to the brand, I'd really be disloyal to my friend. And it's our loyalty to other human beings is much more powerful than our loyalty just to, to objects. And so when the object gets connected with another person, the object's you know, your relationship with the object becomes much more powerful because it's really a reflection of this relationship with, with another person. And we do see that a lot in more collectivist cultures. You'll see groups of friends that, you know, one of the things they have in common is they all love a certain brand. Or very commonly in many countries, not just in Asia, you'll have young people who will all be fans of a certain band or celebrity and our television show. And that's one of the things they have in common is they're, you know, they're all fans of, of this particular brand, band, I should say, or, or, or person. And in those situations, in collectivist cultures, the loyalties can be very, very strong to the brand. Um, we look at K-pop and how in Korea, it's sort of famous for like how just rabid these fan communities are about whatever their, their chosen band is. But really, that's a way of expressing loyalty to the other people. I want to ask you about this marketing trope. And I feel like you are the expert to talk about where the marketing trope goes like this. There is no such thing as bad PR. Bad PR can be good PR. And I feel like one of the constitutions of love is impression. Good or bad air quote. Can you explain, A, why that is? Because I do feel like, at least from a content creator perspective that it is more preferable to have bad PR than no impression. Although there's a fine line between authenticity and algorithm in terms of the controversy on all that things considered, of course. And I want to tie that into the impression, which I feel like is a core aspect of our conversation so far. Yeah. I mean, the expression, there's no such thing as bad PR. It gets at a truth, but it does it in a hyperbolic way. We, it's really not true that there's no such thing as bad PR. <laughs> We've all seen people get canceled. And, you know, we're just like, wow, that was really bad PR. The, I don't remember his name, but the guy who does the Dilbert cartoons. Right, yeah. Uh, just about, at this point, it was maybe a month or two ago, went on a horrifying racist rant. I mean, it was really, it wasn't at all remotely subtle kind of thing. And he was, you know, he was saying, if you're white, the best thing you can do is, this is like almost a literal quote. He was saying, if you're white, the best thing you can do is just stay away from black people as much as you possibly can. Don't go near them, interact with them. So, I mean, you don't get much more racist than that one. And his whole career has come crashing down around him as a result. So yeah, there's bad PR. But the problem in our society, if you look at the number of people who want to be, say, influencers, or content, media content creators of different kinds. I think when my dad was growing up, people, all, all the young boys said they were going to be baseball players. <laughs> right. That was, that was their thing. And, and when I was growing up, it was to be a policeman or a fireman. I'm not sure why that, that was the, the pat answer if you were a five-year-old kid or at least boy. And now the pat answer is I can be an influencer. You know, that whatever it says they want to do when they grow up. Um, I know that in podcasts, you're doing extremely well. Your podcast is ranked quite high, but there are about 3 million. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making up that number. Yep. That's an actual number. 3 million podcasts that are, you know, on some databases out there, of which they think about a million, 200,000 or so are actively producing episodes. You have more than a million active podcasts. It's really, really hard to get discovered. 
through, you know, at all, just to get anyone to listen to you. Since the book came out, I've done over 70 podcasts. Wow. That's a lot. And it is a lot. I think there are quite a few of them that are widely listened to and I get great feedback on them. I bet there's a lot of those podcasts where it was like me and the person taping the podcast and we're the only two people <laughs> ever gonna hear what was on that podcast. Just getting noticed is so hard now. And I think a little bit of bad PR, at least you're in the conversation. At least people are thinking about you at all because it's so hard to pull yourself up. Nonetheless, I would tell people not, you know, don't go. That's not a good strategy. You can do it. There is one way that it can work, which is that if your brand personality is to be a little bit naughty, right, that's sort of part of the appeal of the brand of you as a content producer is that you're, you know, I'm a bad boy and I <laughs> say what's on my mind or whatever, then, you know, if that's your personality, then getting in trouble a little bit is fine because it fits that personality. But even though it's difficult, I would look for other ways to get awareness of, of my brand um, other than bad PR. I'd really double down on, on the good PR. I don't really ask leading questions since that detracts from the organic flow of the conversations, but I feel like that's an important question to be posed in 2023 because with the rise of Andrew Tate or people of that line where they are the bad boy who speaks their mind, women's or properties to be owned, look at me. And of course, he was arrested for potential sex trafficking. I think he was released due to his legal team. But my point is, I think we live in an era where a lot of young men lack role models to look up to. And even at church, I volunteer as high school ministry every Sunday. And some of the elementary, middle school, junior high kids, they actually know Andrew Tate. And they're like, oh, I love, I love him. And I ask, what do you love about him? They said, oh, he, they have beautiful cars, amazing cars. He has all these women. He's good looking. He used to be a world-class fighter, X, Y, and Z. And I was like, ah, that is my biggest concern where I think that is the superficiality I'm most concerned about uh, because the um, superficiality with the mediated interactions at least has some upside. With people like Andrew Tate being on the pedestal by millions, I don't see any upside, even though he does have, and that's also his curated persona. Nobody knows if that's who he, truly who he is or this character that he curated for the sake of appeal, as you said earlier. But I think it's a really important thing. And I think our society is going to be faced with more people like this, like him, who are very mega influential and really creating some detrimental long-term influence that's unintended overall. Yeah, that's, that's a very scary prospect. He's a very scary figure. It's interesting that he was arrested, which suggests that it wasn't all an act. He's the kind of person that, you know, it might have all just been an act, but it, it doesn't seem to have been. At least the police think it wasn't. <laughs> I want to ask you to define your own definition of happiness and what does it mean to have a well-lived life? Because during our offline qualitative process, you attributed to some of the biggest achievements and milestones in your life, not by the influence that you have in the academic world, not by the widely covered exposure and coverage that you have, but that you have a rich life with your sons, with your wife. So what does the happiness mean to you as a consumer psychologist, advocate of Dr. Love and all things peace and love and happiness within your decades of research and your personal interest? I think the, the Beatles said it very well. They said, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I think that kind of sums it up. That's wow. Uh, that's good because I do know that happiness is this very elusive thing because there's happenstance, there's different factors. And I do know that the best way to seek happiness is actually gratitude. And you can seek gratitude by giving, by more sacrificial love. We started this conversation with. By gratitude and, and through your relationships with other people that I am very conscious about prioritizing my relationships with other people because that the data is very clear that that's where happiness comes from. I mean, so a lot of it's genetic. <laughs> Certain things are genetic in, in there. But in terms of things you can really do much about, 
your relationships with other people is uh, pretty much top of that list. I just had this another question, sort of follow up to what you just said. There are some things we can control, which is our relationships, and there are forces outside of our capacity. Can you share some of your lessons from your decade of work that you dedicated in building a national Jewish organization, working for a negotiation solution with the Israeli and Palestinian conflict to sort of put your message in the messaging board that there are things we can control and is worth trying and is effortful regardless of the outcome, air quote, on the other side? Yeah, so what you're referring to is shortly after 9-11, I know that event affected people so strongly who were, you know, around at the time. And so we organized very, we became a large group and eventually merged into a group that still exists. It's called J Street that our group merged together with at one point, but kept the, the J Street name. But mostly what we did is we set up dialogues within the Jewish community so there were some Jews who were very hawkish on these issues and others who were much more dovish and getting them to just talk to each other. And what we found really did work is that if you, you get people to trust and talk to each other a little bit, people come out more optimistic about this. And one of the things I would say that I learned about this is that there are real bad people out there, but we have a tendency to exaggerate the malevolence of people who are we don't agree with for whatever reason or are outside of our group and that that just is is everywhere and it's a very natural thing and we've done i would say right now we've done a good job not perfect job but we're making progress on you know within racial groups or within gender identity saying we're not going to do that we're not going to see these people as malevolent but we don't recognize that the same psychological problems can occur between political divisions. And if you look at people who are conservative uh, or people who are more liberal, their views of the other side are really distorted. There's a strong tendency to see whoever the other guy is as more extremist and more unreasonable than they really are. And so, I guess I would close my my lesson here, or at least my practice is, I've always been a liberal, and being liberal has always meant having sort of compassion for people who are different from me. And I guess I am so liberal that I actually have compassion for conservatives. <laughs> that's, that's how liberal I am. I hope that more of us can take that attitude, even though I, I know that there are real you know, dangers and real problems out there. I think that's uh, this was not intended. A lot of times I ask a questions and just with the surrender, some magic happens. But it's such a cohesive and beautiful way to connect everything we talked about where to achieve happiness, you need meaningful relationships. To cultivate meaningful relationships, you need to have a dialogue. And through a dialogue, love could transpire on an interpersonal level. Wow, that's great. I wish I had said that. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. I didn't even realize you're right. That does all that's all there. And I hadn't really heard seen those connections. So that's that's a really nice job of pulling things together. (laughs) It's based on the context and the dialogues and the responses you share. But I'm a podcaster. I gotta do something and contribute something to this (laughs) conversation. But but seriously though, I do feel like dialogues are dying at large, left versus right or any other language or dichotomies you want to inject here. But uh, it is a big concern of mine. And that's why my love for long-form conversations with experts like you or just others, people I come across, I'm doubling down more and more. I'm near three and a half years into podcasting. And my love only expands because I do know that this is a very unique container that a lot of people don't have. So yeah, I really appreciate your time today. And for your thoughtfulness and just how you showed up today with your expertise and your breadth of knowledge and passion. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. So this is the Red Carpet Moment, Aaron. So uh, where can people connect with you? Check out your book. Of course, I'll link all the information in the show notes, but any other upcoming projects and for people to maybe carry this conversations more interpersonally with you offline? Yeah, so the book, once again, is called The Things We Love how our passions connect us and make us who we are. And it's available at most bookstores and 
certainly online. I also have a website called The Things We Love, and you can sign up for my blog there and connect in other ways there. What I really uh, enjoy doing a lot is I do public speaking. And so if anybody is looking for a public speaker, I've got two fairly different approaches. Uh, being a marketing professor, I do a lot of work for businesses, and, and that's really about how can we build brands and products that consumers will love and use that as a way of being successful. Uh, I do a lot of that, but I also have another area, which is just talking to groups about the kinds of issues we've been talking here. You know, how do we handle materialism in our own lives? How do we learn to love the things we have and feel gratitude and enjoy the, op, you know, beautiful affluence that even, even many poor people, people in our culture who we consider poor would be considered affluent by other cultures. And, you know, how can we appreciate and enjoy that and, and have the richest lives possible in a consumer culture without becoming materialistic in a really negative way? So those are some of the issues I talk about. And if people are interested in having me out to continue the conversation, that'd be terrific. Like I said, I appreciate your time and uh, I really, really learned a lot and I enjoyed these conversations and I'm excited to share this uh, with the world after the fact. Well, thank you again for having me. It's been really a deep conversation that I've gotten a lot out of. Thank you. Thank you. And to all the listeners, as always, I will link all the information in the show notes so you can check out and discover more about in addition to the conversations and insights you've taken away from our conversation today. If you enjoyed today's conversations and if you derived any value, because it's all about providing you with the value that you care about, I ask you to share this episode with one friend, not two, just one friend. That's how you help me to grow this show. And as the show grows, I can have the ability to seek out more fascinating people who lead with integrity, like Dr. Aaron today. And as always, immensely gratitude for you joining us week after week and for you giving the attention which is the rarest commodity in 2023. And as always, hope to see you again in the next train of Discover More, where we wield curiosity towards the unknown. And as always, I'll see you next time.